It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to the Two Jacks, episode fifty-two. And joining me, as per usual, is Hong Kong Jack. How are you, mate? I'm excellent. We're in the uh, middle of Diwali here. In fact, it's Diwali all around the world. Diwali, yes, it is. It's not just um, a specific to Hong Kong thing. No, but it's. I live in a, a very. It's a very Chinese city, Hong Kong. But I live in a very multicultural area of it. Within three blocks, we have Hong Kong's Catholic Cathedral, Hong Kong's oldest mosque, and Hong Kong's oldest synagogue, and there are no shortage of Hindus around as well. So the streets have been full of people who are unaccustomed to wearing the full Indian kit. You normally see them in Western gear, but they've had the, uh, the saris and the... Uh, and Safari the, suits? The, it's a kind of a safari well, no, suit. No, but, but you, you, you'd have almost thought Pierre, uh, Justin Trudeau was back in town. There have been so many people <laughs> dressing up as Indians. There you go. Well, lots of public holidays coming your way. Perhaps not with Diwali, but uh, there'll be there'll be plenty coming your way. Yeah, we do uh, celebrate. We do celebrate every kind of holiday here, though. I go to. That's the way to go. Now, look, we we did promise our listeners that we were going to have a bit of an expanded discussion about the Brumby culling, which is causing uh, a lot of consternation around the country, and this is based on a, a Senate inquiry uh, that's called on the New South Wales government to use aerial, that's helicopter, shooting uh, to cull the growing number of feral horses damaging the environment in the Australian Alps. This has been met with a fair amount of cynicism. The report was backed by Labor, Greens and independent senators and it also recommended the Albanese government develop a national plan to limit the impact of 25,000 feral horses in the high country and boost funding to states and territories to improve alpine environment protection. Um, Jack, the first thing we've got to say is that um, a lot of the sort of freedom advocates, the, the freedom movement, cut their teeth in this activism around the Brumbies and they stick to this kind of poetic nonsense that that these horses have been here for 100, 150 years, when that's clearly not the case. We've got some data here that says the population of the horses in, in the Alpine country had grown by 4,000 over two years. Uh, that's a lot of breeding, but I'd suggest to you that's the more than breeding. That's, a, that's horses being dumped there. Yeah, it's very hard to know the answer to that, but it could be, yeah. Uh, this is the word that a number of sort of thoroughbred racehorses have been elbowed out of the out of the horse float somewhere around around Kosciuszko's, and I suppose they would be the lucky ones in many cases. But if you've got twenty five thousand and the population is growing by four thousand over two years, that would indicate to me that's more than mating. So, what's the problem here, Jack? Why is this so controversial? It's the Bambi effect, isn't it? Horses look cute. People don't want to to manage them, manage their numbers, and which, which means killing them. But and, and we, yeah. we, we had the same view of sharks and crocodiles. It's just terrible to kill things, and, and that's just wrong. I mean, 
It was, it was actually David Pocock who instigated the inquiry, the independent senator for the uh, and and they've got the support of the Greens. We are talking about the extinction of several Indigenous animals in the, in Kosciuszko. Animals are on the brink anyway, because horses, funnily enough, aren't Indigenous to this country, and they tend to make a mess of the environment, as do feral cats, as do pigs, as do goats. Buffaloes buffaloes in the Northern Territory. Yeah, we've got all sorts of problems there. So when we talk about this, when you talk about it in plain speaking ways, this seems to be um, a regrettable but uh, understandable response. Yeah, I'm a bit of a farm boy about any of these things, whether it's crocodiles, sharks, feral horses, feral cats or whatever, um, I reckon you know you've killed enough of them when they're no longer causing a problem. Yeah, and, and it's true. Probably the worst animal to be introduced into the environment is into the Australian environment is the cat. Cane toads wouldn't be far away, and what they do is absolutely wreck biodiversity. They can do that through, and, and rabbits would be on the list there too, Jack. Yeah, rabbits are tastier, though. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of them. Yeah, a bit of rabbit saddle is okay, but uh, I have spent in my younger days uh, dispatched quite a few bunnies and uh, got up to central New South Wales. Um, well, I'm just trying to think where we were. It's a place called Roto near Hay, and uh, we dispatched quite a few pigs there, Jack. After I'd seen a razorback that the farmer had taken as a squealer and uh, and it was time to turn him into a baconer, and uh, he put a high-powered 22 round into a, in, in between his eyes, and then he jumped over the fence and jumped into the uh, into the enclosure, and was halfway through cutting its throat, and uh, and it jumped up, got up to its feet again, and was looking for a fight. So we, by this stage, we we're on the we we're on the bad side of the fence, so we all leapt back over. And then for the very first time, I had to go out and blast a few with a 30-30. And I was a little bit worried because I wasn't all that good a shot, Jack. But well, uh, well, I, well, I missed the Victoria market because I, back in the 80s, I could pop down there on a Saturday morning and get a pair of rabbits skinned and cleaned for, for $4. And now the only rabbits in Hong Kong I can buy are these cosseted farm animals from, from France. I think they live on, in the four seasons. They cost so much when they get here. Aren't they enormous, though? Are those they ones? are big, yeah. They and are no, big and nowhere near as, as gamey and as tasty as a good old Aussie rabbit shot in the back of the in the back paddock. You know. shot, shot in the back paddock. That's the best way to shoot them, Jack, in the back paddock. All right, we've got some immigration issues now, Jack, that I'd like you to turn to. Basically, the High Court, uh, well, the Commonwealth of Australia, that is the government, lost a landmark case which overturned the 2004 Al-Khateb decision which authorised indefinite detention, even in circumstances where it was impossible to deport uh, a non-citizen. So that's been overturned, Jack, and that's meant the release, more or less immediate release, of, uh, of a number of... Uh, refugee applicants who have been held in custody over various offences that they've committed, some quite serious, that involve sexual assaults and what have you. And and now the government is going to have to deal with that. It's going to have to deal with it by legislative instrument, isn't it, first? Yes, but it can't do that immediately because the High Court handed down, fairly unusual for the High Court to do this, they handed down the decision immediately but with no written reasons. And until the government gets the written reasons, they really can't frame any legislation to 
to either counter it or work around it. That may not be possible anyway. Uh, and I'd say they're unlikely to get those written reasons this year. Um, so it will take some time um, before any legislative fix, if indeed a legislative fix would work, uh, uh, can be made. I, I noticed uh, the opposition leader and other members of the opposition trying to make merry on this as if it was the government's fault, but it's the government's problem, isn't it? Well, it's the government's problem now. And, and the government argued against the, the High Court decision. They, they wanted to keep these people in detention. That's the current government wanted them to keep them in detention. These are very difficult cases. The fellow who bought the action in the High Court is a Rohingya man who is a convicted child sex abuser, but there's no prospect of getting him back to Myanmar, Burma. Of course not. Um, and yeah. the probability is that no other country would consider resettling him. And not all of the 92 cases are going to be convicted sex offenders. Another chap I think is a Malaysian who's accused of murdering and then blowing up a woman in Malaysia, um, uh, and he can't be deported because he would be executed if he's returned to Malaysia and the Australian government won't deport people who face possibility of execution. Right. So some of these cases at the top end, if you like, are they're, really they're difficult. absolute top end. You've got a number yeah. of others who have recorded driving offences. There was a yep. story in Paul Garvey report in, in the Australian Today as we record this on the 14th of November 2023, there was a Somalian fellow uh, who had committed a number of driving offences. They were all meshed at a, which is the right term, razor ribbon around a hotel, but that's where a lot of these people are currently held. The And some of them will be what we used to refer to as identity cases, that is people who, who make an application for asylum, for a protection visa, and say, look, I, uh, I stowed away on a ship and I got here that way, and this is what my identity is, but there's no way of checking that. Right. And some of those cases are pretty poor. Generally speaking, people who are in that situation have been before a tribunal and a judge multiple times and still no one's believed them. So that's a difficulty. Um, have the government got some of this wrong? The, the opposition does have one small point, and that is it would have been better if the government had been a little bit more transparent um, about what these cases involved. If they'd said, the reason we opposed this, opposed the High Court decision or argued against the High Court decision is because there are a range of cases from the most serious through to and the less serious, and they are, but they're all kind of difficult cases. Yes. And, and we're not going to hide from that. But they did hide from it a bit, and that's a mistake. The, I noticed that Simon Birmingham for the Liberals was arguing for the, uh, the use of terrorist laws and control orders therein, applying those control orders to some of these individuals. Jake, is that reasonable? Well, the only, lawful? The, the only way you'd ever do something like that, and, and indeed the only way to deal with these 92 cases really is on a case-by-case basis. You look at it and say, this is the degree of difficulty we've got. How do we get around that? But what I'm asking is, without legislative change in this period, <clears throat> probably for going for some months, is the um, implementation of control orders, is that lawful? Uh, I don't think so, but there will be a lot of follow-up work, shall we put it, from, from the various police forces involved to keep an eye on people. Well, Birmingham was talking about putting electronic bracelets on people and those sorts of things. 
I don't think that's a, a solution that's available. Yeah. So not at the moment. The opposition and, and, and is there may never be a solution. I mean, you know, it's one thing to wait for the high court reasons, but that might not put you in a situation where you can legislate to to change this. You know, we just might be stuck with it. Right, yes, and of course the opposition is, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make, is making merry with all of this stuff yep. by suggesting things that are not lawful, that are not that, that might resonate with voters but, but are not something that the government can actually do. Yeah, but the way for the government to counter that was not to wait till Ben Fordham on, uh, on the radio in Sydney started talking about the bloke who murdered the woman in, who was alleged to have murdered the woman in Malaysia, but to come out on the front foot and say, these cases are difficult. Some of them are like this. Boom, you know? Yes, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. When was, that, when was the, uh, the High Court finding handed down? Oh, a couple of days ago, I think. Yeah, it's only a couple of days ago. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, well, I guess there's there's an issue there for the government to address in terms of communications. It, yeah, look, I have been looking at Birmingham and, and Dutton uh, and saying, well, you're really making merry here on just playing some pretty awful politics and basically insinuating that the government has failed. This is a, a subject of a high court finding. The government will need to make legislative changes. They may indeed involve control orders and electronic bracelets going forward, but they can't do it at the moment. And I guess your point too, that the government has let this, allowed the opposition to get on the front foot, I suppose. They did. The the government made a political error, I think, in the way they approached it. I think there's no guarantee that that legislation would work. I don't think it will be found to be constitutional. My my gut feel is that that, that the things that people think that they can do now just won't work. So, that's it's always hard to predict what a high court's going to do, right? But but I, I I just don't think it will work. So technically, we would have to get used to the fact that people coming here who have committed serious offences, and I note that the ninety odd applicants, many of them are not serious offenders, driving offences and things like that. But in, in at the pointier end, we may have to get used to the fact that people convicted of very serious crimes these cannot be sent back. Yeah, worse than that, uh, the ones who've done their time here, who committed the offences here, and they're like everybody else who's done their time. I suppose we're just going to have to live with the fact that they're back out in the community. But in the case, say, something a bit like the Malaysian case where the guy has committed the crime, perhaps committed the crime, alleged to have committed the crime in Malaysia, can't be sent back, hasn't Mm. actually done his time, right? Uh, And he might be in the community. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, but the, 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 some of the, the, the cases, most immigration stuff sails through pretty smoothly and fits within the parameters. Every now and again, you get stuff that operates on the edge and they're very difficult to deal with. Yeah, 92 people. It's not something that this country uh, um, can... It's not something that we can't absorb, is what I'm saying, 92 yeah. people. Um, and there are some particular, particular problems amongst that group. Uh, and... Yes, I think the opposition's making making a bit of merry making merry out of this, like Peter Dutton with the whales, Jack. But we won't get into um, that today. That's not on our list of discussions today. Yeah, yeah. Peter Dutton's become a whale lover, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. And that takes us to polling. And uh, interesting stuff here. I, I, I did have a look at William Bowe's poll budget site, which has Labor his two party preferred equations. 
leave leave it at fifty seven forty three. A massive two party preferred difference now between the government and the opposition. And all while we're hearing all these sort of, sort of tales of woe around the government. And I think there are some issues that the government needs to address, particularly at the pointy end. But overall, they are leading in polling by a huge margin compared to the one they won by. Yeah, this is pretty much what I expected it to be. Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, has suffered a small personal hit, and I think that's probably a a hit from the referendum, amongst other things. Yes. Um, But as I thought would happen, the Labor Party itself, the Labor government itself, hasn't suffered any damage from the referendum much at all. Yeah, so Anthony Albanese's personal ratings, a very good plus good performance rating had been down 5 to 39 with plus, with poor plus very poor, up 3 to 46. Peter Dutton is respectively at 35, in a very good performance rating, and 40 on a negative or very negative rating there. Peter, Peter Dutton records his best results yet. They're not great. They're still in the negative, but they're his best results that he's obtained. And added to this, well, Albanese leads 40 to 27 on preferred prime minister. I'm not a big fan of that particular polling data. And he's in from 47, 25. So there's a marginal change there. But that's really just preferred prime minister is a sort of nonsense thing, isn't it, Jack? Yeah, um, it's not something I take pay much attention to. Yeah. The only time I'd ever pay attention to it is if you had an opposition leader who was profoundly and over an enduring period ahead of the sitting Prime Minister. That's the uh, only time I think yeah, you can take uh, that seriously. And, and, and that normally shows up in the, in the two-party preferred figure anyway. Uh, if you remember back to when Kevin Rudd was elected Labor leader, he got, I think, about a five-point bounce in the two-party preferred. Yeah, and thing. never. And, 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 there never was nothing, and there was nothing that Howard could do to shift it. Yeah, that's right. That's the I was thinking of that instance too, that he led, I think it was around December of 2006, he led as preferred Prime Minister yeah. uh, and was never, and, and, and as you say, Howard never got close to him after that. There is one thing I want to talk to you about. That there was a, the Age Herald uh, survey has said that there is a sort of growing economic pessimism around the place with between 41 to 46 expecting conditions, economic conditions to worsen over various time frames from a month to a year. And that I think should be the area that the government should be concerned about, Jack, because when we talk about when we talk about voting and what motivates voters, Jack, it's the economy first, second, third, and uh, fourth, fifth, and the, and the rest, basically. There, are, or there always are a myriad of issues, a myriad of issues, but, but the economy, it's the economy stupid always stands. Even more importantly than that, once the voters have decided that you're handling the economy badly, that's a very hard metric to shift at all. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we do have... And, and, they, and we're not there yet, but mm. that's what the government's got to be cautious about, I would think. Uh, yeah, that's right. We're not there yet, but that is something that should cause them 
it should cause them to basically start communicating a little bit better. I think there are some communication issues there. We haven't heard much from the Treasurer for a while. Anthony Albanese has been portrayed as, what do they call him, just because he's travelling? I forget what they uh, like. Airbus Elbow. Elbow. Yeah, 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 which is something that's cooked up in the Liberal Party room or somewhere there, somewhere thereabouts. I don't have a problem with Prime Ministers travelling, and they should be in the South Pacific. <laughs> the South Pacific was largely ignored by by previous administrations, and 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 in the other instance, well, Albanese was in China and doing pretty good work there. I oh, know there's just a, an over analysis, but our relationship with China is much much stronger than it used to be, and we can't ignore the fact that China is our major trading partner. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Take you back into the deep, dark past now, listeners, to 1976. In fact, the winter of 1976. It was the winter. It was the winter for a lot of Labor people, wasn't it, Jack? Uh, oh, it after the dead. 75 smashing mm. and dismissal. And Malcolm Fraser turned up to open the Krongold Centre, a new education. He was Prime Minister, of course, Malcolm, and it was a new education facility for special needs children at Monash University in Melbourne. Uh, And uh, he'd been, since his election in December of 1975, he had protests all over the place. But this one is staying with us because there's a documentary being made about this. Fraser turned up, it must be said, in 1976, well, there was no really there, there was a, an ACT police force, but there was not the Australian Federal Police Force as we know it today. So there was no one really in protective services or a very small group of protective services who, whose job it is to look after prominent uh, political leaders. And so they turned up at Monash, which Jack, you'll help me out there, probably the most activist university at the time. Yeah, Lot's Wife, I think it was called. The Monash University newspaper, student newspaper, was um, Maoist, really. Red hot, with the emphasis on the red. So Malcolm's turned up there, and there appears not to be a lot of communication with Victoria Police. That's the point I was trying to make. Without the AFB and without protective services, Fraser would have relied on state police around the country to provide security services for him. And this documentary tells how it all went horribly wrong. The documentary is called How to Capture a Prime Minister, and he's been working on it for a very long time. And, okay, so they basically got caught. Fraser and his officials were caught in the building with people hammering on the doors, Jack. Yeah, at the Alexandra Theatre, I think. Alexandra Hall, just a small theatre as you head towards the main buildings in at Monash. It, this was really an accident more than anything deliberate. It was a bit. Yeah, radical students saw an opportunity and they turned up in pretty big numbers at Monash. And Fraser was forced to leave to leave mid-speech and clamber into the Alexandra Hall. And they'd, the protesters had not planned to imprison him there, but he was essentially held hostage for a fair amount of time. And then I, I, over uh, an hour, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, about an hour. Can you imagine the outrage if it happened today, Jack? And 
some thought Fraser escaped through a window, which you'd have to be a big window, but a scrum of police eventually rescued him from the building. And it was shocking and scandalous. I remember I remember the footage or the newspaper reports of that time. I was just a 14-year-old boy at the time, but, um, it, it, you know, paint was thrown all over the cars and there was a hell of a lot of jostling and I think some police got injured as well. And it's the sort of stuff that would cause howls of outrage today, Jack. Uh, in those days, uh, there was a problem. I don't think the Victoria Police were actually allowed onto the university except in very few circumstances. We used to glory in this, Jack, when we were at La Trobe and we used to pop over to Monash uh, on a fairly regular basis too. And uh, the idea that we could commit a few state offences, not not really, but uh, but there, there was no way that police could enter a university at that time. It was almost like an embassy that police could not enter that without the express um permission of the Vice-Chancellor, and the Vice-Chancellor and those Vice-Chancellors in those days were not likely to give it. Yeah, there, there are a couple of exceptions to that, but pretty much that's the case, yes. Yeah, that was the case. Uh, I, I just, uh, so, so you could safely fire up a blunt, for instance, uh, without, that's uh, without sort of, That's problem. where I was going, Jack. That's where yeah. I was going, Jack. We used to go to Monash and fire up there, and then we'd get back to La Trobe and fire up again. And uh, once we were off the road, we felt pretty comfortable about everything. Mm-hmm. I'll just uh, read an extract from a very good friend of ours, one of the great police officers of the Victoria Police Force, the great Brian Harding, who was a chief superintendent, a former secretary of the Police Association, and one of the very best coppers you'd ever want to have on your force. And he, he relates this in his memoirs, that story. He said the pro- he basically starts off by saying the police relationship with Monash had improved vastly since the first visit to Monash by Prime Minister Fraser in 1976. On that occasion, Victoria Police were outside the grounds of the university waiting to be summoned if wanted. The hectic escape of Fraser, and that is not to put to the issue too melodramatically, Brian says, was more accidental than planned. A breakdown in communications left the rescue of Fraser to a lone police officer in an unmarked car. He hustled the Prime Minister out of the besieged Alexander Theatre into the car, not through a window, sadly, Jack, and just escaped the threatening mob. This narrow escape was witnessed by Acting Dean of Education Professor Ron Taft, who shared the stage with Fraser. Professor Taft, some years later, summed up the status of police at Monash in 1976. And this is a quote from Professor Ron Taft. For a policeman from outside to come onto campus would be like entering an embassy. Yep. That's the way it was in those days. Nowadays, <laughs> I don't think there are any impediments, are there? I haven't followed that, but I suspect not. Yeah. yeah. And it's just an interesting tale. And uh, a Prime Minister banged up in a hall <laughs> with a mob outside calling for his head. If it happened today, Jack, wow. Be held to but you, 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 you were right at the beginning of this to say that there just wasn't the the security around our politicians that we take that we expect today. That just didn't exist at all. I mean, what there was, you know, the prime minister would have had a close personal protection person with them, maybe two, but that's it. There's no yes, yeah, that's up. it. Now there's an army. Now there's a small mm. army of protectors there from Commonwealth Protective Services, which is a branch of the AFP, a secret service, if you like. Um, on to more uh, 
simple practical things <laughs> that a government can do to get things very wrong. And this is the communications minister, Michelle Rowland. And it's been reported that gambling executives hosted her at a lavish lunch on her birthday. Happy birthday, Michelle. In the private dining room of one of Melbourne's best restaurants, the Responsible Wagering Australia, which represents sports book Sports Bet, I should say, Ladbrokes and Bet365 paid for the November 16 uh, lunch at Society Restaurant. I presume that's last year, Jack, because it's November 14 now. Yeah, it was last year. Yeah, Last year. So happy I'm birthday guessing, for last year, Michelle. I'm guessing this just came to life. This, is, this has just been dug up. Yeah, that's right. The lunch was labelled a policy briefing with Ms Rowland, who has a key role in gaming policy, and was teed up by Labor's corporate fundraising arm known as the Federal Labor Business Forum. According to sources, membership of the forum costs up to $110,000 per year. Anyway, Geoffrey Watson, former um, prosecutor with the New South Wales ICAC, said the point about all of this is for too long we've permitted a system under which governments, it's always the government of the day, have been able to fundraise off the back of controlling power. He goes on to say, it seems to be selling government knowledge to a select few. It seems to be a system under which unless the people paying the money are fools, they're gaining access to information or influence in return for a donation or the cost of a dinner. Does that sound right to you? He says, to me, it's sickening. It's a bad look, isn't it, Jack? Particularly given uh, we've got the gaming folk there. Well, I, I guess it does look embarrassing for Michelle Rowland. I've actually been to quite a few of these oh, functions. Of course you have, Jack. Of course you have. And good to be good food. Good food and drink. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm not a – certainly still not opposed, but certainly in those days I wasn't opposed to a good lunch if there was one was – and I never had to pay for myself to go to it. Um, <laughs> so, so, then we get into murky territory there. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, so uh, I, I don't agree with him, his characterisation of what happens at these lunches. Yes, you do get access. You get to have a little word in the uh, uh, in the ear of a minister, perhaps, and you find out some information that um, maybe won't be available for another hour or two, uh, but that's about all you get. Um, people don't go along because they think they're going to change the government's mind so much, or they might think that a little bit. People go along because they want to be close to power. It's a bit like the same reason um, why well-paid executives um, will pay almost any amount of money to go into the change rooms after a sports ground. They want to feel like they're part of it. I want to rub shoulders with the powerful. Yeah, I'd also they want to rub shoulders with the powerful. So the, the, Michelle Rowland, her role in gaming as communications minister is pretty small. Uh, yeah. It relates to how we would advertise gaming. So that's perhaps a little bit more excessive than that. That falls into her belly work. But in, into the sort of nuts and bolts of, of gaming itself, she doesn't play a huge role, must be said. That no, really comes down to the state minister. Can I just give you an example of how it works at these things? It was before the 2007, before uh, the Rudd-Gillard government uh, was elected. A very good Italian restaurant in, in, in Paddington, I think 15 or 20 people there, mostly from the banking industry. and Machiavelli's? Yeah, uh, no, around the corner. And the... The, the candidate to be Deputy Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, was there and 
a couple other people who were organising it, and, and I was invited along. And all the banking executives, they were just like sports fans. They just wanted to know how the election campaign was going. Um, did they think they could win? Um, who was going to who was going to end up where? How it was going to look? How the government was going to look? That's exactly what you get for that. It's what you pay your money for and that's what you get. And the food was excellent, by the way, and the wine was even better. Well, we have, of course, elected politicians, Jack, and as we've covered in this show and many others that we've put together, they are prone to make mistakes. But actors and rock stars, Jack, never will. They will cut to the heart of the matter. No one can do it better than they. And, and we saw this with Kate Blanchett last week who gave Australia a thorough bake over its treatment of refugees, Jack. Did you she She's an open borders person, which you can afford to be if you're as rich as Kate Blanchett. That very fine philosopher, Homer Simpson, said, actors, there's nothing they don't They know. can't do. I yeah. think it was rock stars, but they're, yeah. they're interchangeable stars, in this case, yeah. yeah. Rock stars is there. Anything they can't do is the exact quote. <clears throat> she called for international refugee law to be upheld, notably the 1951 Geneva Convention, uh, as this, and I'm quoting now from Kate, was not only still relevant but foundational to our common humanity. It was a sort of lovely speech in many ways, but it doesn't... I mean, I used to be an open borders person. I mean, I was until probably around about... When, when I changed, that was probably around about 2010... When we had, when we basically had the, the number of people coming into the country by boat at this stage was on an annual run. So basically, over the over a two month period, was getting up to about fifty thousand people per annum, and that's when I started thinking, gee whiz, the government's actually lost control of immigration here, and that's why I started changing my mind a good deal about that. Being an open borders policy, being an open border supporter, means you've got a clear conscience. But in, in the way the rubber hits the road in, in geopolitics and, and Australian domestic politics is these things are far more complex than that. No, and normal people won't vote for you if you're an open border person. <laughs> That's true enough too. So, but thank you, Kate, for your wonderful contribution. And yes, we are all terrible people. But she's oh, a fine actor. <laughs> Yeah, not a fan. Anyway, Elbow we just talked about, Airbus Elbow, isn't that tedious? Come on, guys, you can do better. Elbow was with the South Pacific Forum last week, and as part of that visit, Australia will now offer permanent residency to Tuvalu's population of 11,200 under a world first, sorry, world first resettlement agreement for climate refugees displaced by global warming as part of a far-reaching treaty with the tiny Pacific nation. Under the deal, Australia will offer Tuvalu a security guarantee driving, sorry, giving Canberra the right to veto any attempts by other countries to strike a security agreement with the island state, talk about that in a minute, and nullifying the risk of another Solomon Island style pact with Beijing that sent shockwaves through the Pacific. The Prime Minister unveiling the treaty with Tuvalu, Tuvaluan, counterpart Kosia Notano on the sidelines of the Pacific Islands Forum in the Cook Islands on Friday described as the most significant agreement between Australia and the Pacific Island nation ever. This is a groundbreaking agreement and the Australia-Tuvalu Union will be regarded as a significant day in which Australia acknowledged that we are part of the Pacific family. Jack, that also allows, it will allow a number of people 
to come directly from Tuvalu who basically will be misplaced otherwise. So it seems to be a fairly sensible agreement, Jack, and with some good strategic purpose around there. We, I don't think we fully understand, well, perhaps we're starting to get a, a proper understanding of the extent of China's influence in the South Pacific. There was aid, a, a document released last week, which showed the level of aid and PNG getting more aid than anyone in the South Pacific. A good friend of mine, currently a regular traveller to Vanuatu and it's uh, part of our drive to build Joa House, who was a Vanuatu and <coughs> there, and uh, and he notices the full extent of Chinese money throughout the South Pacific. Don't expect you to comment too much, Jack, but this is a pretty good deal, isn't it? This is good. Um, this is yeah, good. it's not bad. It's eleven thousand people. I did, I was just reading it, uh, and I thought that's, a, that's the maximum, by the way. Yeah, yeah. that's the maximum. The if you're Prime Minister of a country of 11,000 people, do you think you're as important as the Chief Minister of the ACT? I mean, it's, they're both little, it's like being on the, the Mayor of well, a local council. Well, there's a, a, a good 400-odd thousand, nearly half a million people in the ACT, Jack. I mean, I know that, that it, the trouble is you, don't, you can't drive your car fast in the ACT. That's what you can't do. You can do whatever else you like, but just don't yeah. drive your car or don't chop down a tree. That's the other thing, really bad. That's the worst thing you can do is chop down a tree. But if you want to get on the uh, want to get on the ice, knock yourself out. Uh, I know the Australians been leading pretty hard on that. I'm actually a bit of an advocate for drug law reform. So comparing them to comparing the potential penalties for minor league possession to a speeding fine is a bit silly in my view. But anyway. <coughs> How do you feel about it, Jack? What do you think about drug law reform? Look, I think these these things are tricky. You've got to try and look at the results you're going to get from them. Yeah. It's not as simple as just saying, let's just decriminalise everything and and that will make it go away. Having make the problem of addiction and make the problem of crime related to, to, to drug use go away. And it's just not quite as simple as that. No, it's not. I'm not in favour of banging people up in jail for most things, especially not for drug use, but they are tricky. And look, I I support the idea of having the injecting room in King's Cross, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to make jokes about it being okay to fill your arm up, but you can't light up a bench of the edges. (laughs) You cannot have a durry in the injecting room, which seems to be killing the buzz a little bit. Yeah. It is very difficult, very complex for societies to grab their head, to grab hold of. There is, I'll just direct our listeners to, there's good data sets coming from Portugal, which were probably the, fir- the first country to decriminalise and direct, direct people who were pulled up for possession, direct them through to health departments. British Columbia has just done so because their, their courts were just clogged, their, their prisons were full and they had to find another way. The Portuguese have now a good 20 plus years of data. Most of it is pretty good. Most of it is, is pointing to a benefit, including the age in which the raising of the age in which individuals, obviously teenagers, have their first interaction with drugs. That's actually gone up. With in a decriminalised environment. However, once you look at that data and you say, well, Portugal's done very well. They were motivated by very high rates of HIV. I think they were the second biggest in Europe. And obviously that came from, from needle sharing and what have you. But the data's actually pretty good. But if you thought to 
take that same approach and apply it to Australia, I think you'd have all sorts of difficulties. I mean, not political difficulties, you'd have those anyway. But yeah, just transporting something from a relatively small nation to an enormous one like ours is just not, perhaps not the right way to write up policy. You need to have some practical people around you when you're making these decisions so that when you say, if we do this, what's going to happen? And the, you're, going to, you're going to need the sort of hard-nosed old coppers, etc., who, who are going to know what the unforeseen consequences are. True. And, and every retired copper I've ever spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot, Jack, they also, they, one of their regrets of their careers will be they just spent too much time on this stuff. They spent yeah. too much time on marijuana pinches and things like that. Yeah. All right, moving overseas now, Jack, and to the United States. Well, there's a couple of things that have happened there. We're looking at some presidential polling first. Jack, completely, completely, a complete reverse of that. There was a the state of Virginia had their had their had their elections, not their gubernatorial election, but their their congressional elections for the state. And there was a big big swing to the Democrats there, Jack. There was. There were also, I think, six votes of various kinds on the abortion questions, on restrictions on abortion. That's right. And the uh, pro-choice won all of those, and the Democrats went very well in some down the what we call down the ballot, down um, the ballot. Uh, elections. Now, that um, it, it's certainly possible to have being in a strong position in a presidential campaign and the down the ballots and the gubernatorial elections go badly. The Democrats lost a hell of a lot of state governorships and state houses while Obama won two consecutive presidential elections. So there's a bit like Australia, there's sometimes quite a disconnect between those two things. But mm. but the abortion issue is a thorny one for the Republicans because the track that they're on at the moment just doesn't have anything like majority support. Okay. All right, let's look at some polling and and it's fairly consistent in swing states. This is the uh, this is the Siena poll, is it? Oh, this is the Bloomberg poll taken in the wake of the Siena poll yeah. published in the New York Times. And in Georgia, Trump leads by 7, Arizona by 4, Pennsylvania Trump leads by 3, Nevada Trump by 3, Wisconsin Trump by 1, North Carolina which uh, Trump held in 2020. He's plus nine. Michigan, 43 apiece. Only a bit of vaguely good news there for Biden. Um, Those first figures would be 300-plus electoral college votes. Oh, yeah. These these are essentially, with the exception of North Carolina, these are the seats that, uh, sorry, states that uh, that Biden took off Trump. One of my favourite wits on Twitter, a guy called Kyle Smith, who writes for one of your sister newspapers, the Wall Street Journal. I think he's a theatre critic there, but he has a similar view to the Trump indictments that I do. Uh, his comment was, Trump's about six indictments away from a lead in California. I saw something very interesting. I Look, I'll, I'll come out and make a big statement, and, and I actually think Trump won't survive, and it's not so much the indictments. I think political pondering of voters is going to do him over. And, and the indictments won't help, particularly if he's found guilty. But overall, I see Trump Trump making more and more outlandish statements. I think when we get to, and the point I was going to make earlier was that when we get to abortion law reform in the United States after Roe Ro v. Wade got knocked over, what we're seeing is that there is a dedicated response 
from the progressive or democrat side that brings a lot of people out to vote and this is what we've found basically this is what we found with trump gets people out to vote against him in big numbers this is what we found in 2020 this is what we found in the 2022 midterms so i think politically his fortunes will start to diminish but we'll see we're still dealing must be said jack we're still dealing with basically name recognition polling. You know. Yeah, it's a week short of a year away. The abortion thing is really interesting with Trump because he's the one Republican who is sticking with what the people want with abortion. Ron DeSantis you know, is very critical of Trump because Trump says he would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something. We'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 20 years. Trump warned Republicans that the party would lose voters by advancing abortion restrictions without exceptions for cases of rape and Other than certain parts of the country, you're not going to win on this issue. He is the he's the sole Republican who's arguing for the middle ground in this. Yeah, but I, I can show you a quote from him from a year ago when Roe v. Wade got knocked over when he was claiming credit for it. Yeah, he, he was claiming credit for getting, Roe, <laughs> getting rid of Roe v. Wade. And, and, and there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of lawyers who are pro-choice who would agree with him about Roe v. Almost no one says Roe v. Wade was good law. Haven't heard a decent lawyer say that ever. Um, yeah, that's, Ruth, but that's not the point. But, but what I'm and, saying but, is that there is a, you might have picked it up. There's a, a tiny, weeny little credibility issue around Donald Trump, isn't there? I mean, when he talks about... I mean, we can talk about his failed policies and what he was going to do when he was in government. This was a man who was going to create universal health care in the United States. Never, ever happened. In fact, the only thing he ever did was launch tax cuts. The only thing he ever realised substance that he was able to get through Congress was that. And and so when we get to whatever Trump says now, I mean, you just got to look at this from a point of view of this is a man who's really only purpose is to be re-elected and, and, and to, with, with a re-election strategy or a policy rollout of revenge. I mean, it's extremely dangerous. I just yeah, think well, don't, don't underestimate him. Um, don't underestimate him because he's capable of seeing issues, uh, some issues that other people don't that the political class don't. I mean, he won in 2016 largely on the back of that he was the only person who said that immigration, illegal immigration to the United States was a problem. Nobody else on either side of politics agreed with that, and he won. And he's the sort of person now who can come well, out, and he's the only person on either side who can come out and say, this is where we should end up with on abortion. I remember a, a, a bit of vox popping going on in after his defeat, a defeat that he doesn't accept, by the way, in 2020. And people were saying, well, when did you stop voting? Well, when did you stop supporting Trump? And they said that this was in the Midwest where elections are fought and won. And, and these people said, well, it was when he lost the 800-odd children. They, they realised, I mean, Americans have a more profound connection with their immigrant immigrant backgrounds than Australians do. I would hazard a, a guess at that. And that is that they know their own stories. They know their great-granddad or granddad or came, came to the United States with often with often with not very much money. They know their immigration stories. So they actually look at this perhaps more fairly than Australians might. And, so that, and when they saw 800 kids disconnected from their families and, and the government being unable to reconnect them, that was when a lot of them dropped off Trump. And that was within probably three months of him being sworn in and less. Uh, uh, 
Americans like Australia are an immigration success story. And in both countries, the clear majority view in both countries is legal immigration, go through the system, yes, come across the border, arrive on a boat from Indonesia, no. Don't lose 800 kids. Yeah, I agree. No one, bearing, wants, no, no one wants bearing. to lose 800 kids. But, uh, yeah, but, but so, I mean, uh, this I is still terribly unpopular in the United States. I, I really just don't think he's got a great deal to offer. And I see in his sort of creeping rallying cries, obvious mistakes, the sorts of things that he routinely points a finger at Biden as, as suggesting that Biden's cognitive abilities are, uh, are lacking. Trump thought he'd won, he'd beaten Barack Obama. In, in a rally recently, he thought he'd beaten Barack Obama in 2016. He thought when giving evidence under oath in New York, he thought he was president in 2021. Well, he was, but it all, that all ended on January 20. And, uh, yeah, so there's a little bit of uh, cognitive dysfunction going on there too, mate. And so would you, by the way, and so would I, if we were facing a 91 criminal, total criminal indictments. Yeah, anyway, all, all I can say is don't underestimate him. I think, I mean, uh, I think that, that would be a sin. Certainly he has a pathway to victory. That's very clear. But uh, I'm just seeing, the, I'm, I'm looking at how he's going to go early in the new year and I just think that's when the wobbles are starting going to kick in. We'll move on to Israel and Gaza, Jack. Oh, no, look, before we do have small modular nuclear reactors, and I'm not going to have a laugh at your expense here, Jack. I am going to have a bit of a laugh at the opposition opposition who hold small modular nuclear reactors as policy. And this comes about because the only company in the United States making them uh, basically filed for bankruptcy and one of their proposed SMNRs, small modular nuclear reactors, has now been cancelled because of cost overruns, Jack. And we're now talking about a six-reactor, 462-megawatt plant was slated to begin construction by 2026. It's now stopped. (coughs) And then we start looking at the costs and the delays here and how these SMNRs, uh, one, ramping up the cost of electricity, and two, being unable to provide any substantial infusion into a grid. It's interesting stuff, Jack. So does that mean that if you're getting projects cancelled, you don't like this process anymore? No, what I'm saying is, Jack, how can the opposition cling to this as policy when it's falling over? And not just falling over because you've got you've got New Scale, which is the company now in, in financial trouble and seeking seeking protection from its creditors, but they're actually having to scale back the output of an SMNR and at a high, at a higher price. So what we talked about, what we've always talked about with nuclear energy in Australia, is it cheap? Is it reliable? Is it carbon? Is it carbon friendly? Zero emissions, if you like. And the answer to the zero emissions is yes, more or less. And the answer to the other things is no. It's not cheap, and it's not reliable. Good. While you're checking these things out, have a look at a, a Danish company called Orsted. They've just cancelled the Ocean Wind 1 and 2 offshore wind schemes in the United States at a cost of 3 billion British pounds. And why? Wales 
No, global offshore and wind had found itself in a perfect storm of skyrocketing costs caused by high inflation and rising interest rates. The industry woes have also been compounded by problems in the supply chain and the, they're not got the reliable enough guarantees on the price they're going to get, which was the problem with the small modular nu- nuclear reactors project that you were talking about, they couldn't get a guarantee of a big enough price to justify the investment. So did the same problems are happening. Did you have a look at their megawatt outage? Yeah, I because, did. Because small nuclear reactors now, small modular nuclear reactors, modular just means it's built somewhere else and then and then fitted where it wants to go. We're basically, <clears throat> look at this, the commitments in place to buy the reactor's future power covered less than 7, 25% of its output. UAMP set itself a year-end deadline to bump that figure to 80%, 80% by recruiting new customers, and they just haven't been able to do it, Jack. Yeah, um, so, the, so same, the same goes for the offshore wind project. Smaller amounts of power, for, and it's more expensive. It's yeah. not the same. It's not the same at all. But basically, what, what what I'm saying to you is that the opposition has a an energy plan, right, for Australia that involves SMNRs. That's the only, basically, that's their environment, their their energy policy in a nutshell. To basically committing themselves or committing this country to build things that are really just architectural design drawings. Yeah, and I don't really care what the opposition's policy is because they're not going to be the government. I think a policy on uh, environmental issues, on on climate change, if you like, that doesn't include a wide variety of things, including nuclear power, is just nonsense. Well, Uh, we don't do it, Jack, because because it fails two. It fails two of the three tests. Not reliable, not cheap. Well, the renewables fail one of them on every occasion. They're not reliable. Well, who says they're not reliable? Where have they been unreliable? Where? Well, where? they can't guarantee dispatchable power. That's unreliable. Well, who said they can't guarantee? Where did this happen? When can a renewable energy source guarantee dispatchable power? Do you believe in unicorns or something? What do you mean, dispatchable power? Give us a that definition. Is guaranteed here. What you're saying is a contribution 20, to the grid. It's, it's absolutely it's renewable. It's a renewable source, whether it's wind, solar, and what? What are you saying? That it can't be stored. That it can't be. Uh, that yeah, that's what I'm saying. Can't be stored in number. It can't be stored in the. In, what do you in, mean? In can't the, be. In the quantities what, what, you need. What are we talking about? No, 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 you're 1995 funk now. I mean, you, obviously you would understand the technological de- de- developments are about battery storage and holding power longer in a, in a battery good, good system. Good luck with that. What do you mean good luck with it? It's, it's happening now as we speak. I mean, I mean, yes, there's going to be, while we get while we carbon, while we decarbonise the global economy, Jack, there's going to be a lot of money. There's going to be a lot of money misspent. But the worst thing you can do is lumber people with long-term contracts for power that's unreliable and power that's not cheap, and that's what nuclear is. I mean, we've just seen it. You've got a company, the only company in the world who are providing these things have now gone belly up. And if we did all of that, as you suggested, it would not make not one jot of difference because the consumption of fossil fuels is going up, not down worldwide, and there's nothing that we can do in Australia or in the Western world that can change that. Oh, well, so we've we've scrapped scrapped nuclear on that basis alone, but we've scrapped nuclear firstly, and this is the point that I've been making, because it's not cheap and it's not reliable, Jack. That's why this is what, this is, we've just seen it. We've just seen it, new scale 
filing chapter, what is it, chapter, chapter eight? Uh, bankruptcy protection or creditor protection? Yeah, so, like, come on. You've got to look around and you've got to understand what batteries are doing now that they weren't doing six months ago or even, or even three months ago. You've got to keep up with this. We've got to keep up with that, mate. <laughs> All right, over to Israel and Gaza. Who, who have we got here, Jack? We've got an Israeli writer. Help us out. Uh, he, he had two things to say, which I think are true. Uh, two predictions, he says, that about this war that have not played out so far. Everyone said a ground op- operation into Gaza would greatly increase the casualties on both sides, but the opposite has happened. Um, since, the, since they've stopped bombing, since they've stopped using the planes and missiles, yeah. far less innocent Gazans have died from ground forces. Um, the other thing he says... Everyone said Israel would ruin its ties with the Arab world, but not a single friendly Arab country country has chosen to do so. That's quite true. The other thing that I would also say, Jack, is that when when we were talking about the IDF going into Gaza, that there was a likelihood that they would come up against at least a well-reinforced soldiers in well-reinforced positions and made it very difficult for themselves. But... Uh, and possibly leading into a quagmire, but none of that's happened either. You looked at the photos and thought this could be Stalingrad, and it certainly hasn't been. There was a two meetings in Riyadh at the weekend, one of the Arab League and one of the OIC, the Organisation of Islamic Countries, um, and they were meant to be separate. In the end, they were kind of plumped together, and that was because the Saudis were trying to get some kind of agreement amongst the I guess, 70 odd countries in total, and they couldn't. And, and this is from Al Jazeera. People do understand that the Israelis don't really care about what is happening at this summit between the OIC and the Arab League leaders. When you look at the communique, you get a sense that the Arab and Muslim leaders do not have a mechanism to push a ceasefire and humanitarian corridor. The summit was just for the sake of a semblance of unity in the Arab and Muslim world. It is a watered-down statement. Not all Arab leaders decided to attend the summit because of the huge differences and divisions amongst the key players at the summit. So the idea that Israel is losing support in the Arab world is, I think, a furphy. It is losing support in the wider Islamic world, but and I think that's true, and that's reflected... In the protests we see around the world, the pro-Palestinian protests, there are vanishingly few Arabs in the crowd. They are Muslims from much further away from Israel than that. And we might also say that they might be losing support of not Western nations so much, but people in large numbers attending rallies over the weekend. They rally in London, hugely attended. And, of course, since then, Jack, I'll get you to comment on this, Suella Bravman has been removed as, as the Home Office Secretary, Home Secretary, and, uh, and her replacement's not been made clear yet, but that was after she made uh, a claim that, uh, that the police were acting in a biased way. Just leave the specifics out of that or the, the specific details around that. How stupid do you have to be as a politician to go kick a copper? or kick, kick the cops. I mean, it's just dumb. Yeah, and perhaps she deserved to go. It's it's all very bad politics from uh, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister. What no, he needed awful. to do was to, if he was concerned about Bravman, was to come out and say, 
without talking to her first, just come out and say, this is the government policy. We uphold the law. We don't deport people because mm. they have unfashionable views. We don't prevent protests from happening because we have because they have protesting something that we don't agree with. But he could also yeah. come out and say, yeah. we uphold the law. That means we expect the police to enforce the law equally regardless of what the protest is about. And, in fact, I would have gone further and said, and they haven't been doing that well enough. There's a whole lot of evidence about that. I mean, when 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 you've got Tommy Robinson and his group of thugs. Yeah, forget Tommy Robinson. You're probably going to go a bit harder there. But but um, forget Tommy Robinson, but there is plenty of evidence that they weren't. And that's been happening for a long time that they've been enforcing some laws much more stringently than other laws and they have caught up, they've caught themselves up, not just the British police, but they're the worst at it. They've caught themselves up in the idea that the job of the police is to be community engagers, that they've got to be very kind to to people and to all the people who are protesting and get selfies taken with them and wave flags with them and all this sort of stuff. And that's not their job. Their job is to enforce the law. And they've got that wrong. But that's what Sunak should have done. Then Suella Braverman would have been faced with the choice of, okay, do I resign or do I come out and fight back against the Prime Minister? Either way, Sunak wins the situation. He didn't do that. What he did was he ran around sacking people. He's brought David Cameron back into the cabinet. I know. It's unbelievable, isn't um, it? I mean, no. needed to do the work on this because here's a member of the House of Lords. Well, he had to become a member of the House of Lords. He had to become one, yes. In fact, Charles made him a life He became a member of the House of Lords yesterday so he could take the Cabinet spot. I I, I went The government looks a complete shambles. It does. This is now an election for Keir Starmer to lose. Yeah, it it is really death now stuff. I agree with that. Bravman, for me, the worst statement she made was that homeless people basically choose to live the lives they they lead. And that was just an impact incredibly callous and stupid statement to people who are genuinely homeless. One one commenter came forward to say there, there are high rates of brain injury for people who are homeless. People have suffered a brain injury uh, and then never quite recovered and found themselves sleeping rough on streets and things like that. I mean, yeah, she really is of that bent that, well, maybe this is an out for Sunak that he's got one less extremist <laughs> on on his part on his side, but yeah, yeah no, was- he's, he's come, come out of this much much weaker. And what on earth's David Cameron thinking? For a bloke of his background, you, you might think, oh, well, he, he's got a spot in the House of Lords. But frankly, if you're from David Cameron's background, being in the House of Lords is a bit common and a bit naff. Gone from the animals to the vegetables, Jack, and yeah. as they say. But Keir Starmer's doing the right thing. He's obeying the old rules. Never interrupt your opponent when they're in the process of making a mistake. True so enough. He's um, his head I, down. I, I, I had to actually. I, I, but for the, how can you make him uh, Secretary of State? And oh, sorry. Yeah, but yeah, basically, they're Minister for Foreign Affairs. And I thought, is he still in the parliament? No, he retired and he resigned in 2016. I couldn't figure it out for a long time. And then I thought, he must be in the Lords. And then I looked at the Lords and he's not there. And so they've created this situation. It looks so bad. It looks terrible. And Cameron's had a series of scandals that he's been involved in post-politics. Um, 
he's he's probably the least likely person that you would want to see again. I mean, whether you're for or against Brexit, you'd still be looking at him and going, well, he's the bloke who made this mess. Yeah, well, I thought the Tories were almost certain to lose now you're uh, now the they're election, but they've just uh, odds on. Yeah, short yeah. odds on. Yeah. All right. You could, so, you, so could, she's you, could, you could go around to the payout window and start lining up now. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Poor performance, really, from a whole host, and it really does look like uh, a government in the UK just uh, just uh, not just run out of steam. It looks like they're dead men walking. Um, it's a shambles. All right, so there was something very interesting, Jack, that I wanted to, we're sort of running out of time, but we do need to get to this. There was a BBC report this week, and that, that's uh, or last week, that suggested something, or no, it was actually just covered on the weekend, something unprecedented is happening, says the report, this weekend in Paris, brought about by the war between Israel and Hamas and its spillover in Europe. For the first time ever, a major demonstration being attended by representatives of the major political parties includes the far right, but not the far left. On Sunday afternoon, thousands of people heeded a call from the speakers of the two houses of parliament to show their support for French Republican values and their rejection of anti-Semitism, this in the face of a steep rise in anti-Semitic action since 7 October. Among the first to announce their presence were Marine Le Pen, three-time presidential candidate for the National Rally, formerly the National Front, and the party's young president, Jordan Bardella. Almost simultaneously came a rejoinder from their counterpart on the far left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, irascible leader of France Unbowed. His party would not be attending. It's a really interesting it's a really interesting thing, Jack, and I think it's a reflection of the global reaction to the Hamas attack and now to the war that is going on between Israel and Hamas. And that the left, particularly the far left, has shown its anti-Semitic spots, and the far right, not so much. Well, I don't think the anti-Semitism on the far right has gone away. And there was always that. some anti-Semitism on the far left as well. Yes, true enough. It's just, it's spread, the anti-Semitism has spread from the, the very far end of the far left through a fair bit of the progressive world now. And that's because uh, they're, talk themselves into dividing the world between what they think are the oppressed and the oppressors, and that's their only sort of demarcation line. So that's where the whole Israel is a, is a settler colonialist country comes from. So this is a comment uh, from that report from Serge Classfield, and he and his wife helped bring Nazi war criminals to justice and documented the deportations and deaths of 80,000 Jews from France exterminated in the Holocaust. must be said that uh, once uh, once, uh, France fell, or most of France fell, uh, to the Nazis, their record on uh, uh, Jewish persecution and looking the other way is not very good. Better, much this better. Is, the, the Italians this is vici, much better. This is Vichy France you're talking about. Well, it's Vichy France, of course, but but there were the many Parisian Jews were rounded up and placed in a velodrome in Paris, and they remained there for a couple of weeks before transportation to camps was ultimately arranged. And no one seemed to give a damn about it, Jack. I would say the Italians who are actually on the Axis side of things, have a better story to tell 
in terms of uh, resisting uh, Nazi orders to uh, to persecute and transport Jews from their country, Hungarians also too, until very later and very late in the war. And France doesn't have a great. It must be said, does not have a great history in this. But anyway, this is Serge Klaasfeld and his wife who helped bring Nazi war criminals to justice, and he told Le Figaro, he's an 88-year-old man, for me the DNA of the far right is anti-Semitism. So when I see a big party of the far right abandon anti-Semitism and negationism and move towards their Republican values, naturally I rejoice. He goes on to say the far left for its part has always had its own anti-Semitic tradition, just as you said, Jack. So just as I am relieved to see the RN take a stand for Jews, so I am sad to see the far left abandon its actions to combat anti-Semitism. It's a fair comment, isn't it? It is. Just one thing about all the demonstrations that are happening around the world. I don't know what you think, but I'm not convinced. I'm convinced there's wide support, particularly on the progressive left, for the Palestinians, but I don't believe that's anything like majority support. I think it's a noisy minority. I think we can talk about resolving the issue of dispossession around Palestine or Palestinians. The simple fact of the matter is that Palestinians have been offered a homeland, I think, seven on seven occasions since 1937. And it's really not come to anything. And that's, I think you used the term and I've used it too, that the Palestinians are... Um, uh, largely the architects of their own misfortune in many ways. They've allowed themselves in this instance to be overwhelmed by a twisted ideology in Hamas. I I, I don't know where we go with this. I understand there are some people around who would say that the creation of a Jewish state of Israel post-World War II was perhaps not the best way to approach things because it would always create a deep a deep anger and resentment from Arab nations in, in the region. But I, I don't know where we go from here in terms of a Palestinian homeland. And that's that seems to be the rallying cry of the left at the moment. Would that be right? Um, that's a bit unclear. Uh, a, a lot of the progressive left say we want a two-state solution, but um, I can tell you who doesn't want a two-state solution is, is Hamas, uh, a good deal of the Palestinian Authority, Iran, um, Syria, etc. But none of them want a two-state solution. They no. want Israel gone. That's right. Yeah, from the river to the sea, as they say. Yeah. I mean, there is, there are, and I won't ask you the, the trivia on this, but we know that there are a number of countries uh, that are driven by um, religion, Islamic countries. There are a number of Christian countries like this. There are a number of secular countries. But there's only one Jewish country in the world. So when you talk about from when you talk about or sing or indeed uh, from the river to the sea, what you are actually saying is the obliteration of the Israeli state. You are. This has all proved very, proven very difficult for progressive Jews around the world, and uh, they are having their world turned upside down because they. The people who they thought were friends, they thought were allies, who they thought shared values with, are now, if they're not pro-Hamas, they're pretty damn close to it. 
Yeah. What do what, what do you do if you if you sit across if you sit at the next desk to somebody and you thought you shared values? You both do a job that is a very progressive job, and you know that your colleague is going out on the streets on the weekend and chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. How do you how do you reconcile that relationship? Mm. I don't know. I, I have no answer to that. No, um, nor do I. And this, this is the problem that a lot of progressive Jews around the world are wrestling with as we speak. How do I move forward from this when people who I thought were my allies are calling for the obliteration of, of the only Jewish country in the world? Oh, yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, Jack, in Germany, the Interior Minister Nancy Faes has implemented a formal ban on any groups that show support for Hamas, including protesters. In a statement, she said, with Hamas, I have today completely banned the activities of a terrorist organisation whose aim is to destroy the state of Israel. So... the German, I've got to say, the Germans have been very strong about all of this, much more so than other countries in Europe. The Hamas flag is banned in Germany. <gasps> oh, I just wonder if we, I mean, I think these things are largely symbolic, but if we started talking about banning flags, as we did with the Islamic State flag in, in Australia, can you imagine the outrage? That would have been this sort of, where's my freedom of speech, outrage, that, that sort of nonsense. I, I, I don't think banning stuff like this is the It's right not terribly approach. helpful, but yeah. I'm just asking you to imagine the backlash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, look I don't think I, think, I think that's the wrong approach in the same way as what I suggested Rishi Sunak should say is, no, we allow protests for all. We, we, you're allowed to be stupid. We allow protests for silly ideas. But you're allowed to uh, assemble. You, I mean, you have a right to assemble. But, uh. but we've got laws that we can enforce. If you are chanting gas the Jews, expect to be arrested. What are you going to be charged with that, Jack? Offensive behaviour, I mean, these things, this is part of the problem and, and that that sort of chant. And to be fair, those, um, with a few exceptions, the rallies in Australia have been, thankfully, the pro-Palestinian rallies, thankfully, have been devoid of that kind of nonsense for the most part. But there have been some ugly scenes at the same time very bad in Caulfield last week. And, it, yes, it's it really is an unpleasant time. I've been thinking about doing a column, which I'll be writing tomorrow, that it really needs to explore, I mean, I think people's understanding of history, the history of anti-Semitism, particularly in Germany in the 1930s, which led to the final solution in the 1940s, is that these things were incremental. They didn't start with putting Jewish people on trains and sending them to, to concentration camps. It didn't start that way at all. It started by increment and largely had the support of the German people. And that's the concern. It always is concerned with uh, anti-Semitism, whether it comes from the left or comes from the right, it is never far away. Mm. All right, moving on to sports. World Cup cricket uh, semi-final start tomorrow. Yeah, as we record this tomorrow, India will play New Zealand. They're playing in Mumbai and Australia will, will play the South Africans in, in gardens. Just to get there, marvellous innings from Mitch Marsh, 177, his highest score for Australia, I think, overall in all forms. And uh, he continues to hit the ball very hard. And also Adam Zamper, who's just, he probably started the, the tournament a little bit slowly, but he's now the leading wicket taker in that. India come into the finals undefeated. New Zealand has well, had 
have had some injuries, they've had some form issues that that allowed them to just make the four. So you'd expect uh, India to knock New Zealand over in, in Mumbai and I expect Australia to beat South Africa in, these, uh, in, in Calcutta and Calcutta as well, but you might have a different opinion, Jack. Look, it's knockout stage so tournaments, always a bit tricky. But yeah, India are hot favourites to to beat New Zealand and, and favourites to win the whole thing. Australia probably looks a bit more likely than South Africa, but whoever's going to beat India is going to have to hope they get the Indians on a slightly bad day, I think. Yeah, that's basically it. As a commentator, new to the commentary box, Shane Watson has been saying there are no there are no weaknesses in that Indian side. No, but, um, but brilliant pre- bowling. Yeah, sport, sport, and you know, winner takes all competition. Someone's got to be a loser. Things can go wrong. Yeah, there you go. So the Aussies are up, I think, Friday, isn't it, Jack? The, the second semi in uh, a Wednesday Colcata. and Thursday, I think, and the finals on Sunday. Oh, that's it. Yes, they're only a day apart, and then the final on the, on the Sunday. Sorry about that, folks. I should have. I owe you a slab, Jack. I've uh, left the phone on uh, <laughs> while we're recording, so uh, that's in the mail. And uh, we also have the AFLW finals <coughs> coming as well, Jack. Yeah, and I lost my little piece of paper with with the with the details on it. All I can say is it's going really very well because they're pitching it at just the right level. They're using the right kind of grounds, and they're maintaining a healthy degree of interest. All right, and big crowds at the races, Jack. Saying up to the cup. Getting yeah, a bit of a high. so they were up percent, I think, from last year, the numbers uh, and the crowds. And the, the weather was probably good. That helps. But their figures for viewership on the net and on the television were very good as well. So I think the people who think that racing's on its way out and dying, they're, they're not on the money. Yeah, welcome, the, the VRC, welcome to total of 262,165 racegoers across the four race days. So that's the Derby, the Melbourne Cup, the Oaks. What else have we got? Oh, we haven't had it yet. The, oh, no, champ, Champions Day was on Saturday, so Champions that was, Day, that that's was right. a pretty good day. 262,000. You wouldn't have to go back far to find much better attendances than that. I mean, there used to be the Derby, they'd get to a get about 140 of the derby sometimes. The Well, back in the day when I used to go to all four days, um, the Oaks Day was only about 30,000 in those days, so they, these are good numbers. Yeah, encouraging for the horses. Just leave them out of Kosciuszko if you don't mind. If they're not running all that well, find a home for them. Find a good home for them. Don't just dump them in the in, uh, in the Alpine Territories of New South Wales because that is a big problem as we kicked off the show with. Well, thank you, Jack, for your time and particularly around those immigration issues uh, which you provide a great deal of clarity on. And uh, we just want to remind our listeners today that uh, you can get hold of us with comments, criticisms, etc., and uh, get hold of me by hitting me up on a number of people hit me up on uh, on Facebook too but but you're more than welcome to hit me up on Twitter and at Jack the Insider my DMs are always open and you can get hold of Jack too on uh, on his Substack give me the address there please mate hongkongjack.substack.com just before we go just something from David Burge my favourite person on Twitter everybody wants to march in Maudlin Princess Dice style candlelit vigils with Jiswe Charlie signs but nobody wants to be Charlie Hedbo. 
Well, that's fair enough. Yeah, well, we want a sense of belonging, Charlie. <laughs> so, I mean... I mean, I used to read a lot of National Lampoon's, Jack, but uh, I reckon even PJ Rock would have considered some of, some of Charlie's work pretty out there. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I thought it was a, a completely rubbish magazine, but that's not a justification for going <laughs> no, in with, a, know, with, a, with right. a gun and shooting people. Exactly right. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. And thank you, listeners. And we will be back to you next week. See ya. <laughs>